Happy Monday, kitty cats. And if you are listening to this program today, then I know that you are a person who cares about their liberty. It's also a pretty good chance that you're pretty tired of waiting around for political change, tired of being duped by political parties and politicians filling you with hope and then never coming through. Well, guess what? If you're ready to take matters into your own hands, then I want to tell you about an amazing community called the Nomad Network. This is the number one community for liberty-minded people just like you who want to create freedom in their lifetime by focusing on entrepreneurship, investment, and income mobility. I have personally been involved with this group for some time now. I hopped on because I got into a stage in my life where I realized that I was ready to take things to the next level. I was sick of just talking about my liberty, and I wanted to take action to actually achieve that liberty. And the Nomad Network has been an incredible hub for doing just that. You got people in there posting their W's, uh, talking about their businesses, helping each other out, hiring each other for jobs. It truly is an amazing network. It is a little bit of that building the arc that we talk about so much, building that next pathway, building that community so that we can thrive while the rest of the world just burns around us or does whatever it's going to do. Whether you already have an existing business idea or you just want to network with like-minded people, the NoBand Network is the place for you and you can join for free right now by heading over to www, and you do need the www, by the way, www.nomadnetwork.app slash lion, no S, lion. Take control of your own future. Seize your own liberty. Join the Nomad Network today. We need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools, but the inspiration to break free from the system. Welcome to the flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly dose of education, inspiration, and real-world application from the top minds in the liberty movement. If you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right, my guest today has both a YouTube channel and a Substack through which he discusses politics through the uh, lens of the neo-reactionary philosophy. We'll discuss more of just what that is today. And he recently posted an article on his Substack entitled Libertarian Diagnostic Failure. So you know this one is going to ruffle some feathers. I'm very pleased to welcome Charlemagne. Charlemagne, are you ready to roar? Let's go, as the Zoomers say on Twitter these days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Charlemagne. Well, I, I've been, uh, I don't know, loosely following your work uh, for a little while now. I think I might have first heard you on um, on Buck Johnson's uh, show, Counterflow, maybe a couple months ago. And then I, I came across this article uh, th- that you wrote, Libertarian Diagnostic Failure. We will get into that in a bit. But uh, I, I do want to discuss a little bit more just uh, kind of about your background and how you got into the whole neo-reactionary movement. So if you could just kind of discuss kind of where you were politically, if, if anywhere, before you got into this neo-reactionary philosophy and then kind of dive into just what that means exactly. Yeah. So uh, where I started politically was basically in the default liberal position that uh, Andrew Breitbart has described before, uh, where you're effectively just a normie who just sort of takes everything you see at face value. You probably don't actually watch the news, but you sort of get your your ideas of how things should be through, you know, university and just the, the mimetic propagation through culture. So I was, I was pretty apolitical before I got into politics. And then, you know, of course, in 2015 and 2016, especially some really crazy stuff started happening uh, in the political sphere. And I don't only refer to, uh, you know, the, the candidacy and eventual presidency of Donald Trump, but also, you know, you started to see things like Islamic uh, terror attacks happen um, in, um, in Europe a lot. And, you know, that's, pretty strange thing to see. And, you know, some so interesting things were happening in the world. And I start, you know, started thinking I should start taking things seriously, start looking into this. Um, you know, I, <laughs> ironically, uh, the thing that got me into politics was I saw that, uh, you know, people were, were saying like Donald Trump is, is like the next Hitler and something. And I was like, oh, that sounds concerning. I'd better look into this. Um, and, then I, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and then I looked into it and uh, wow, okay. Um, what a disappointment that must have been. <laughs> so, you know, that, that led to I was one told place. there was a Hitler coming. What is this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that leads from one place to another. Uh, you end up through all these different rabbit holes. You know, I found people like Jordan Peterson and all that. It's pretty mainstream stuff. Gamergate happened. I was watching a lot of the YouTubers that, uh, you know, followed that. And I decided, you know, I should try making my own content because this seems like 
you know, I want to contribute my voice to all this craziness and culture. Um, so I'll just try that out. So I did, and I started a YouTube channel. And eventually, you know, as you start talking to people, you know, they start referencing philosophers and ideas that you didn't know you weren't taught. Uh, no one told you that these, you know, ideas existed um, in the mainstream culture. And, you know, eventually, uh, one of the uh, philosophers that I was introduced to online was uh, uh, Mencius Moldbug. And so people were sharing his um, old blogs from the um, early aughts, uh, let's say around 2004 to 2007 was, I think, his uh, prime time. So people were sharing these articles in, in you know, 2016, 2017. And uh, Mencius Moldbug, who now really goes by his real name, Curtis Yarvin, um, he was a, a blogger uh, back on the um, mid, mid years of the internet and even in the, way back on the early internet. And uh, he wrote this really interesting uh, post on Blogspot. Uh, it's an open letter to open-minded progressives. And essentially what this, uh, what this is is sort of the foundation of the neo-reactionary perspective on things. And it's sort of this uh, structuralist um, deconstructing of the actual uh, systems from like an engineering perspective that um, sort of explain how power in the United States government actually flows. And it sort of unpacks the sort of uh, myth you get taught, um, you know, just in, in normal school, basically about, you know, how you have these three branches of branches of government and you have democracy and electoral college. Um, and, you know, there's checks and balances between these uh, branches and there's like this two party system and, you know, there could be other parties. Um, and these, these parties are supposed to be represent like differing philosophies on the government. This is kind of the normal way politics is taught, but then near reaction, um, sort of deconstructs this and examines, okay, well, this is how we're told power works in the U.S. government, USG, but how does USG actually work? And, you know, how it, how it actually works has been sort of touched on by other people before uh, with terms like the uniparty or corporate oligarchy or this kind of idea. Um, what Moldbug did, did is he, he sort of um, took it a step further and said, okay, well, the way the way the government is really run is by this sort of um, atheistic religion um, called progressivism, and this progressivism comes out of the universities primarily ideologically, and it gets spread by the media and and sort of through this cooperation of a state of of a press and uh, church or university, um, which he calls the cathedral. So the the press plus plus the universities is the cathedral. And this basically represents an, a religious institution. This religious institution has essentially come to uh, rule the U.S. government through a progressive atheocracy. Um, so we don't have separation of church and state um, as we're supposed to. Um, and, you know, we, he also examines other interesting ideas like freedom of the press. Uh, but one thing we often don't talk about is freedom from the press, right? So people understand what a state-controlled religion is or what a religion-controlled state is, um, people understand what a state-controlled press is, what does a press-controlled state look like? And that's actually what our state looks like. That's what our government is. It's a press-controlled state um, through this thing called the cathedral, where the universities come up with the ideas of what is progressive, what is progress, um, what, is, what is the liberal thing to do, uh, and then the, the media promulgates these ideas and sort of a uh, forces through its powers of what people call cancellation now um, to, to, to basically bend the knee so that the, the way the system works is that the elected politicians who are supposed to actually have control over the government actually don't really have any control over what the government is actually going to do. They're sort of just stand-ins. Uh, they're sort of just filling in this, um, this legacy role to sort of keep up the appearances of democracy when we're really sort of just running in this, this corporate oligarchy backed by this progressive religion. Um, you know, even, even, you know, normies kind of understand that, you know, the real power in Washington comes from the money, right? The money from these giant corporate interests. But it is a little bit more complex than that. One of the things the, that, that Mencius Moldbuck asks is, you know, well, how do all of these universities and media outlets sort of come to the same conclusion simultaneously, right? Um, a lot of times you'll see people say there's some you know, there's some conspiratorial deep state, you know, cabal actually controlling all of them directly. 
Uh, but if you actually look for evidence of these connections, they're actually not there, right? There's no evidence that Harvard and Brown and the New York Times and all these other institutions sort of have this power structure over them. So how do they come to the same ideas about how our society should be run, you know, how we should live in a biomedical security state? Well, the answer of how they, they simultaneously generate the same philosophy is that they just have a shared religion. And we're now under the dominion of, of that religion. So this is sort of the essence of the, the neo-reactionary understanding of, of where we find ourselves politically in the United States and the, the West generally. How do you view Donald Trump through that that filter of um, like a, a press-controlled state? Because he, he was certainly an anomaly in some ways, but at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, here we are. You know, we, we didn't really see massive change uh, due to his uh, animosity towards the press. I'm just kind of curious how, how you see him playing into this this sort of dichotomy. Yeah, so Donald Trump was an anomaly that wasn't supposed to happen, but these things do happen occasionally, and the the regime is very. Uh, skilled at integrating these anomalies into itself. So I view Trump a lot like um, Senator McCarthy, you know, basically as someone who who sees this problem and he sort of rolls up thinking that he's just going to, you know, come in and clean house. But the problem is actually 100 times at least more um, larger than he actually understood it was. And, you know, so you're coming in uh, with like a tank and you really need to be coming in with an army, basically. Um, because, you know, McCarthy uh, only scratched the surface and Donald Trump only really scratched the surface. And, and really the fundamental problem with, with uh, President Trump is that, you know, he did not represent a true break from the regime and he was not really re- willing to rule. That's really the problem. Um, Trump could have. Which is funny because the, the, the biggest criticism from the left is that, oh, you know, he's a tyrant. He's this and that. Um, and you might say that's his biggest flaw is that he, that he wasn't maybe in some ways. Right. The, the actual successful tyrants in American history are people like Franklin Roosevelt and um, Abraham Lincoln. These are the types of presidents that Donald Trump should have modeled his presidency after if he actually understood how things work and wanted to you know, drain the swamp, as he said, is, is basically you just you just come in and you act like you're in charge um, instead of just being in charge on paper. Um, this is this is why actually the the left overreacted to him to such a great extent, because they, of course, had no idea what type of president he was going to be. You know, if Donald Trump did actually come in and simply fire the entire State Department, um, this this could have been a big problem. Um, you know, even if even if the Supreme Court says, no, you can't do that or the legislature tries to tell him no. You know, in reality, uh, the the way the branches of government work is is there's sort of these co-equal sovereigns. Um, there's sort we sort of have like three unlimited branches of government as opposed to three limited branches. Um, and you know, people like Franklin Roosevelt and Abe Lincoln are willing to just do whatever they feel like doing and simply defy the courts, defy the legislature. And if Trump had actually done that, it could have represented a legitimate threat to the system. Um, hopefully, future. Republican presidents to the extent that, you know, we can place any hope in that, which I don't really, but anyone who uh, does come in and wants to achieve what Trump failed to do has to really be willing to uh, rule from this perspective, essentially um, rule as a, uh, you know, ironically, uh, in some sense, the way uh, Dick Cheney um, defines the presidency, which is the, I think it's the unitary executive or something like that. Like basically the, anything the president says is legal. Um, and this is kind of how you have to work things because people don't really understand the way the executive branch works these days is that it's, it's almost entirely under control, under the control of the legislature because, you know, they, they have laws in place and the constitution actually allows this, uh, to determine, you know, who the president can appoint and how the appointments work. And, you know, this is the exact problem, um, Trump had, um, where he's trying to, you know, work within the system and the system is designed so that. You actually cannot just come in and flip the whole thing over um, unless you're sort of willing to break the rules. So in some sense, this is the three-party system working as intended. Um, of course, that doesn't really serve the system working as intended isn't really serving American interests uh, at this point. I'm just going to chime in with what I know that there are certain people listening here are thinking right now, and especially because it is what you commonly hear as a criticism of, of neo-reactionaries in general that that neo-reactionaries are basically just just fascists or monarchists or what have you and how how do you kind of filter that kind of that kind of discussion when uh 
when you are on here promote basically saying you should, we do need a strong man to come in. I mean, do, would do, do you do you think that is the ideal form of government in a sense or do you think it's more what we need now to combat what we have as you described? Yeah, I think uh, I hesitate to call anything an ideal form because the the mm-hmm. appropriate form of government depends on the nation, the people, uh what what sort of problem space you're dealing with, you know, for for the Athenians, uh direct democracy worked fairly well for them. For the Spartans, uh their dual uh, monarchy system worked very well for the Romans. They had a different system. Um, it was a very aristocratic Republican system. They had monarchies. Um, I think they had six kings originally in Rome before uh, the Republic. So, you know, a monarchy isn't necessarily the ideal at all places at all times, uh, but it is a much better system generally um, than democracy and even republicanism. And, I, you know, I would say that most, most neo reactionaries are actually monarchists, uh, not all. Um, I would probably include myself as a monarchist. Um, and the, the, the real reason for this is because if you, if you look back at just the way power works in human history and how it is used effectively, when, when you end up with this massive bureaucratic oligarchical state that democracies often degrade into, the, the only real way to get rid of it is a sort of all-at-once transformation. Um, and that really requires a, a unified plan and a unified center of power. Um, so in some sense, monarchism is an answer to the permanent oligarchy that we have now, because the way the oligarchy keeps itself in place is it sort of has these democratic political institutions set out in front of it as sort of this virtualized combat space. So all of the political um, combat, which is a substitution for actual civil war, basically, that's, that's what voting is, basically, is both sides show up to the, um, you know, um, polling booth instead of showing up on the battlefield. And, you know, mm-hmm. this, this, is, this is preferable, right? Um, but, but this whole political arena we find ourselves in is really just a virtualized arena that doesn't actually affect anything. And this is exactly what you saw, you know, President Trump run into. This is what we see when we try to elect uh, congressmen uh, that would serve our interests, even libertarian congressmen, as they sort of just get, um, they just sort of just get controlled uh, by this, this oligarchical system. So the only real way to overturn it is to simply um, have one power center that simply replaces it all at once. And all at once transformation is preferable too, because whenever you have sort of a drawn out political struggles um then you actually have the um potential for you know actual conflict to break out we would we would like peaceful transformation of government uh in the united states as as we've you know more or less with some notable exceptions always had um and monarchy can actually achieve this weirdly through this one weird uh democratic trip right which is you could call a referendum um and you've actually seen this happen in countries before like in egypt uh, after the arab spring uh, where, where basically the people sort of hold their own uh, election in order to say, we would like to replace this government with a new government. Um, and we would like the, 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 some, uh, the, the new government to be transferred to these people. So this is actually a really cool system because the people who are uh, enabling uh, the transfer of power aren't the ones receiving the power. And this actually prevents... Um, this can prevent conflict breaking out. So if, if the public democratically transfers sovereignty to a single individual, as opposed to that individual sort of trying to seize power for themselves, this gives that individual clean hands and the popular mandate to act, basically, and simply remove the oligarchy as, as the new sovereign. And of course, you know, uh, listeners, of course, will be skeptical of, of the idea of monarchy, because you know, in the 20th century, people have this idea of dictators, and a monarch is not a dictator. And the monarchs of the Ancien Regime, uh, basically before the French Revolution, were, were not like the um, totalitarian dictators we see now. Of course, Hans Hermann Hoppe basically um, writes about this. You know, the, the key difference between the, um, the monarchs from before the French Revolution and all the forms that government, of the government that, that came after is, is, is sort of this... this this integral connection between the monarch and the church and not the right to rule, but the duty to rule, uh, the duty to rule in the interests of your nation and to do so in a, a moral way aligned with the teachings of the church. Obviously this is not perfect. There is no perfect system of government that's going to be resilient to all 
negative aspects of that particular government. But um, I believe that this is a superior system uh, to the democratic one we have at the moment. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of find it difficult to, to really see what, uh, how a monarchy could, could not be preferable to the entrenched oligarchy we see now, because there's, there's no, I don't see any other solution to the oligarchy um, than, than going through this route. And, and like I said, it is, it is a route taken many times in history. Um, again, Roman Empire is a, a really great example, but there are plenty of other examples of this as well. Even, even the, the great um, tyrannical regime of uh, the French Revolution was, was resolved into a monarchy, um, um, into Napoleon Bonaparte, who you know, is a problem in of himself. Um, but but this, is the, this is the pattern you see um, when these, these um, extremely, um, these, these corrupted democracies um, enter into this, this um, entrenched state where, where they're simply no longer um, governing responsibly. That there's, there's just no, there's no element of responsibility in the system we have now. This is one of the differences between oligarchy and monarchy, where a monarch is actually responsible and accountable um, because, as you say, the buck stops with him. Um, so um, I'll leave it at that because uh, you probably want to ask another question at this point. No, this is all great. The more my guests talk, the better, the less I have to. But, <laughs> um, um, could, could you foresee any, any realistic way that this sort of like all or nothing change could occur in the United States as constituted today, or is this just too fractured of a system? Because I mean, for the past, and this kind of ties into the article uh, that we'll get into in a bit, but you know, the, the, the 20th century has basically been one steady march of progressivism, no matter who has been in power, no matter what happens with elections, it has been just in absolutely one direction this whole time. Um, but it has been over the course of a century or so while we just kind of have this, this system as the sort of the facade of that chain that, that, that very, um, I guess, I guess gradual might, might be gradual or drastic, depending on, on your kind of big picture outlook of it. Um, uh, but could you see, I mean, I, I'm just trying to envision how this could happen in our current society. Is that possible or is the press too powerful to allow that something like that? I mean, just, just what are your general thoughts on the, the realistic aspects of what you're sort of describing in our, in our modern society here? Well, is it possible? Yes. Is it realistic? I don't think any particular path out of our current problem is realistic at this point. I think the most likely thing that's going to happen in the next, in this century, really, is uh, the United States is going to become more like Brazil and then more like Venezuela. And then if we're lucky, perhaps, um, finally, someone will come along and say, you know, enough of this, uh, we're going to have order again. Um, so <laughs> I certainly think... Well, that's a troubling prospect. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly is. Um, you know, I, I think... Uh, I think it is more likely that we would resolve this problem through a monarchical solution. I think, I think the least likely thing that would happen is that we, we sort of reset the government purely through the democratic institutions that it has set up for us um, in order to self-govern, so to speak. I don't, I don't think we're ever going to get out of this um, through the actual normal system of, of voting as we envision it. Um, there, like I said, there is this, this other trick of democracy where you can just hold your own election, right? I think that's that's really the path uh, forward if we want to find a, a, a democratic uh, means out of this uh, this problem. So I don't I don't think it's likely that we're going to escape the decline of empires that ver- that every single empire has gone through. Uh, but uh, maybe we can certainly land on our feet um, in ways that other empires um, fail to do so because you know. Decline and collapse of empire doesn't mean, you know, the, the nation or the people are just going to mean disappear. everybody dies. <laughs> right, exactly. But it's 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 going to be better or it's going to be worse. We would like it to be better. And we would like, you know, whatever, whatever is next after the American empire, maybe countries even still called the United States of America, whatever that is, we would like to get there uh, in the cleanest and quick, quickest light way possible. And we would like to not become Brazil. We would certainly like to not become Venezuela, but th- those are the paths that we are on and are sort of like the default most likely outcome at this point. And, and really, it's, it's, it's likely because uh, people aren't really willing to um, put a lot of energy into big change that they're not used to um, until uh, things start to get bad, like not having food, which, you know is something we could actually see inflicted on us uh, in the near future. All right, guys. Well, you have seen it. You have felt it. It is clear that inflation is running rampant. And this, of course, is a lot of people more than ever looking to invest in cryptocurrency. 
But one issue that can come with that is, of course, you got to pay taxes on those gains. Well, guess what? That is where our friends at iTrust Capital come in. With iTrust Capital, you can actually trade and earn on cryptocurrencies completely tax-free. That's right. By doing so within an IRA. Uh, IRAs, Roth IRAs are one of the best tax structures out there, one of the best deals. I've had an IRA for years, and now I know I can go to my friends at iTrust Capital to start a cryptocurrency IRA. And it's not just cryptocurrency. You can also self-trade physical gold and silver in an IRA uh, with iTrust Capital. It is really just the best deal going. You can invest in cryptocurrencies and precious metals for completely tax-free gain. Where Whether you hold these assets for the long term or you buy and sell with the market, iTrust Capital's IRA account provides the absolute lowest transaction costs and transparent pricing in the industry by far. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pause this podcast, or maybe you can multitask. I don't know. I I can multitask. Uh, I want you to visit itrustcapital.com to get your completely free insider's report on Bitcoin and crypto IRAs. This costs you absolutely nothing, and this report will have absolutely everything you need to know about the fees, security, 24-7 access, and so much more. And I want you to use promo code LIONS to get your first month for free. That's promo code LIONS. Again, head over to itrustcapital.com, use promo code LIONS, or head over to lionsofliberty.com. Find the show notes for today's episode, click on that link, get that free report, and start investing for your future today. This is a good, pretty good segue into into the article that you posted uh, a week or two ago um, called, in case we haven't ruffled enough feathers so far, um, this one is called Libertarian Diagnostic Failure. And um, it kind of, I'll just kind of lay the background of it. Um, it, it kind of stemmed from a poll that Dave Smith posted uh, about whether the 20th century was a liberal triumph or an illiberal disaster. Uh, that stemmed from a tweet from Jeff Deist, who I'm actually speaking with on my next interview, um, where he described two broad types of libertarians, those who think the 20th century was a liberal triumph, I roll, and uh, those who think it was an illiberal disaster. But you actually um, kind of inserted your own third option, and you actually described the 20th century as a liberal disaster, not an illiberal disaster. So why don't we just kind of start there? Why, why do you describe it? Uh, why do you describe the, the I guess, the, the march of democracy and everything that we have seen in terms of the expansion of government uh, and such? Why do you see that as as liberal as opposed to illiberal. And a lot of this is just, you know, kind of how we define terms, but maybe you can kind of start by making that distinction for us. Yeah. So the way, the way I define terms, political terms is based on what actually happens when people put them into practice, or at least think they are putting them into practice and not really so much as they're defined um, purely in the ideal or intellectual sense. So you see socialists do this with socialism where, you know, socialism is defined as like the equitable, um, distribution of the means of production in society, um, or something like that. And but what socialism actually is um, is the very unequal and very totalitarian um, form of oligarchy that sort of levels out most of society and reserves um, the the benefits of it for uh, one particular set of elite. And it's very inefficient. And it turns out that that socialism is not this. Socialism is just is just tyranny and decay. And um, there, there is actually no way to, to, to create this sort of equity on, that socialism describes itself as being capable of on paper um, and actually maintain a civilization, right? So conservatism, uh, similar, right? So conservatism is, is, is defined as basically uh, maintaining the longstanding traditions of your society, um, because these traditions are good, like Chesterton's fence is good. You know, you might not know why the fence is there, but this thing is there um, to protect you from something that you might not fully understand, but someone put it there for a good reason, right? But of course, in practice, conservatism is progressivism driving the speed limit. Conservatism is just liberalism, but slower. Um, So it doesn't really matter if you call yourself a conservative um, in the political sense, and you, you claim it's this. In practice, we see what it actually is. Uh, and I take the same view of liberalism. You know, we can define li- we can find liberalism as the the libertarians do, where liberalism is this 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 system of human society in which you know there's no coercion used against people to force them um, into any particular behaviors. People are are free to act in any way so long as it doesn't uh, basically inflict coercion or uh, the use of force on anyone else, um, unless in response to the use of force. 
Um, and this is especially applicable to, to the idea of the free market. So people can trade um, completely, uh, you know, unregulated and freely with each other, um, so long as no force is used on anyone and force should not be used. Um, and libertarian and liberalism is, is, is very much about the individual having the free choice to act, basically. Um, and, you know, every, every type of association should be voluntary. And, and you know, this, this will produce like the most uh, well-ordered society because force is inefficient. Uh, cooperation is, is more efficient. And this will allow people to, to build a better system. So that, that's what liberalism is, is essentially defined as. But what liberalism has actually been um, over the last several centuries is this, is this individuating force um, that has basically disintegrated all of the longstanding bonds uh, between the peoples of, of their respective nations and their religions and collapsed the ancient integrated structures that govern the societies and replaced those structures with purely self-interested um, oligarchs. And these, these new rulers, they don't rule with this sense of um, greater duty and responsibility um, for their civilization. They rule in their self-interest. They rule for the self, just like in a liberal society, everyone is really looking after the self more than anything. And of course, people choose to look after um, you know, their own families and things like this. But, but what's lacking is this, this larger um, national structure um, holding things together. So I see liberalism as sort of being the, the source of tearing down all of these ancient structures that paved the way for socialism and other totalitarian systems. You know, if it wasn't for um, the liberalism that especially instantiated itself in the French Revolution, but in subsequent revolutions in the 19th century, like in 1848, we, we couldn't have gotten to the type of states we have today, the total states that libertarians so despise. These type of states really started, um, you know, more than 200 years ago at this point. Um, and e even people you might consider reactionary, like um, Bismarck, the great German uh, Prussian statesman, were actually largely responsible for this, for this to some extent. Um, so this is what I see liberalism fundamentally doing. It's, 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 it's one thing to have this idea of human liberty and freedom, which are actually different concepts, I think. Um, but it's another thing to see what it does in practice. And, and in practice, it has, it has simply upended our civilization by the roots and, and turned everything on its head. And, that's, and I see a direct line between um, liberalism and exactly where we are now in the total state. Do you think that, that the way you described, uh, I guess, the libertarian view of liberalism as you know, free markets uh, you know, being more ideal? I mean, I, I know I've, I've heard you talk about uh, you're, you seem very well versed in like Austrian economics and that sort of thing. Do you think that do you think that it's true? I forget the term for a minute, but for the liberals, whether the term liberalism should apply to or not, do you think that 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 ideal is true in the general sense? But but there's just a but there. Is is there just like yeah? But then when we get to politics, it's kind of a whole new ballgame. Yeah. Well, there's really two types of libertarianism. There's Austrian economics, and then there's political libertarianism, and and these things are really entirely separate. Especially um, Austrian economics really has nothing to do with political libertarianism. Um, in the sense that it's it's purely um, a logical a, a logical field of study on its own, and whether or not this political movement called libertarian exists, libertarianism exists is, is kind of irrelevant. Um, Austrian economics is is really um, I would consider it basically the, the 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 most advanced understanding humans have yet to reached about how human action, as we call it, economics actually works. So I would say. Austrian economics is is true or it's correct if you prefer. Um, it's absolutely correct uh, in terms of how uh, market how the markets work in terms of uh, you know the idea of of people freely cooperating. Um, you know, I basically agree with. I, I don't disagree with Austrian economics at all. I, I think it is correct. Um, I'm no expert on economics, um, but I have been. You know, I've followed uh, a lot of Austrian economics people over the last several years, and you know, they, they've basically convinced me that uh, the Austrian economics, is, Austrian analysis, is is simply correct. Uh, so, if you want to have the the most efficient economy um, that that best serves people's interests in anything, ranging from healthcare to 
um, you know, agriculture, you should really organize it with no state intervention whatsoever, because this is only going to introduce corruption and inefficiencies in the market. And if you're interested in things like, you know, the just price, say, from the Catholic perspective, the way you're going to get the best prices for anything is just in a free market. Is the free market going to be perfect? You know, no, it's, it's when, when, when humans actually act in the real world, they never act perfectly. Uh, um, they never act. They're never, they don't always act, you know, as you, as you would call good. But if you want the best um, economy, it really should be uh, an Austrian economy. Uh, so, so that's that's Austrian economics. But then, libertarianism is this entirely different ball game where you have things like the the non-aggression principle and these sort of moral injunctions on what you should and shouldn't do to people. And I think Austrian economics is very much free of this. You know, uh, yeah. Austrian economics it's isn't descriptive how, more than exactly. Pre- it's it's pre- descriptive pre- and not prescriptive. Libertarianism is is proscriptive. And it, it sort of proscribes itself's limitations that prevent it from actually acting in the field of power. Um, and this is really sort of the fundamental problem with libertarianism as opposed to Austrian economics. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that libertarians should, you know, abandon the, the concept of liberty. I think the, the entire reason I'm interested in libertarianism is because libertarians seem to be the only people actually interested in liberty anymore uh which which i am also interested in as well i just think there's a even if you think they're going about it all wrong at least you know at least we have the same sort of idea behind yeah, it. yeah well the, the main reason they've gone about it wrong is because the, the libertarian party has been subverted by leftists um mm-hmm. where the austrian uh the, the mises institute is not um really because the mises mises institute is, is sort of based on this very um logically rigorous type of study that everyone in the field of Austrian economics really holds each other to. But politics is sort of a different thing um, where you can't really base human action uh, in the real world uh, or human political action, I should say, on these like strict, rigorous ideological principles because people are hypocrites. And when you're trying to act politically, um, it's not this entirely logical field of study. It's not, you can't reduce um politics down to a formula like you can austrian economics where you're just sort of mathematically describing you know what will happen if you do a certain thing uh you can't you can't describe exactly what will happen in the real world like if you you know if you if you people if you institute a certain policy or if you run a candidate with a certain platform you can use statistics to sort of guess at what will happen but but politics is sort of not this this entirely rigorous arena like economics is um so you have to act in a more fluid manner um and to some sense you sort of have to i guess you could say break your own principles in some way like this is the problem with libertarianism right is 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 you sort of you don't want to tell anyone what to do but at the end of the day if you want to have a libertarian society you're going to have to tell people what to do because you're going to have to take political power which involves uh, ruling, um, which is telling people what to do. Um, so you sort of want, run into this weird conundrum in libertarianism in the democracy we have now, where um, it's sort of at odds with itself. So a lot of people might say, hear that and say, well, you don't need to tell other people what to do to be free yourself. You don't need, you know, you can have your own, you know, covenant communities or enclaves or what have you and um and kind of form your own communities you know and you can do that without aggressing on other people what's the problem with that <laughs> why does that not work in reality the problem is other people are, are not happy with that not only are does it seem like most other people aren't actually interested in liberty at all but they're not even interested in you having it um you know it's very clear um that the the modern left um simply will not tolerate um this type of free covenant society uh existing anywhere especially within the continental united states uh they say this openly um this is part of the whole system of californians emigrating to other states you know they're they don't want you to ever have freedom anywhere in the world um uh, the the left is is an entirely totalitarian universalist ideology so the thing is if, if you want to actually have your covenant community or or your libertarian community it's going to have to be a of a certain size to actually defend itself um even if that means you know just making people be free you know be, being free by force basically um because you know a, a tiny a tiny county size like microstate 
um, you know, maybe it can exist for a little while, but that sort of thing is simply not going to be tolerated by the totalitarian left. So, you know, ultimately, you're you're going to need a power like the United States to to actually be a libertarian or free country in order to actually maintain that freedom. And that is going to involve telling a number of people, you know, this this is simply a free country, and you're not allowed to to be uh, for you know, California is not allowed to be communist, right? Sorry, you're just, you're free to choose most things, but communism is just not something you're going to be free to choose, uh, simply because the effects of that is, is that, you know, we know, we know how, how communists and the left works, they work through subversion. And when, when you allow them to sort of to freely organize and build power within your midst, you know, ultimately, that is going to subvert and undermine, undermine the, uh, the order you've put in place. And for for that reason, um, it's just one of those things that can't be allowed. You know, basically, if you, if you want to have a um, a libertarian country, uh, you you actually do need a powerful state behind it. It can be a, a small state, but it has to be one that's willing to use force when necessary to prevent itself from being undermined by by these type of interests, particularly from democracy. Right, like a libertarian state uh, should be a monarchy because uh, there's really no need for democracy. Uh, in a libertarian state at the federal level, because you know the rule would be this is a there's nothing to change. It's it's a it's a free country. You're not allowed to vote yourself into communism, basically, right? This is kind of the problem we've had now. And just to want that one guy there to say, yeah, be free. <laughs> Those are our laws for the most part, you know. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, if, if freedom is so good, I don't really think it's that bad to um, you know tell people uh, you're going to be free uh, by force and you're going to like it. Basically, I mean. It's just like, this is what you're going to have to be willing to stomach if, if you actually are interested in your own liberty, because if you don't, if you don't sort of take politics to that level, other people um, who actually do really want to hurt you are going to take power, as we see now, and then they're just going to act out their policies instead. You know, you, you just, you can't organize societies at a large scale on this purely voluntarist basis, because the it's simply not a powerful enough myth to appeal to people. People, um, nations are really built on myths. Uh, myths are extremely powerful. Right now, we're ruled by this sort of evil, perverted American myth of of equality and equity. Equity, where the, the true American myth really is uh, about liberty, and not this concept of equality. So, you know, I think on that basis alone, uh, you know, any any libertarian leader, even president, has has all of the mandate. Um, and right that he needs to say that, uh, look, we're just not going to tolerate, you know, California being communists. Uh, you know, you can have a high tax rate higher than other states, maybe to some limited degree. It's not like you have to, you know, restrict every single policy. You know, you don't even have to have 50 states. You can have counties or whatever self-ruling. It's just that you have to prevent certain types of things from occurring at a certain level. You know, if, there, if there's one guy, if there's like three guys who want to form a hippie commune or whatever, you know, it's not like the state has to be totalitarian in this sense and sort of intervening in people's lives on, on like like it does right now. But there are certain things you're going to have to prevent people from from doing. You're going to have to aggress on them, um, you know, before they actually aggress on you, um, because the the construction of any amount of communist subversion, socialist subversion, leftist subversion is itself a threat to to the very existence of liberty um so but, but again this this is at odds with how libertarians think right they can't they can't think of ever using force against someone except in response to force but you know sort of the problem is is that hasn't happened in the united states right it's not like socialists have well in some cases they have but for the most part socialism has just sort of democratically instantiated itself in the united states and there was no like um no one's coming to your to your house at gunpoint uh, in order to you know tell you okay well you're gonna have <laughs> you're gonna pay for for healthcare um, and you know you're gonna be taxed this much. I mean, tech, there ultimately is a gun behind it, right? But 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 people don't view it this way because the gun is so abstracted from you just paying your taxes every year. There's like eight degrees of separation from the actual gun, and most people n- never get to that eighth degree or whatever it may be. Right, and because of that, you can't sort of like wait for the gun to actually come to zero degrees of separation. You have to just say, we're not going to allow ourselves to get in this circumstance in the first place. Um, so that, that's kind of my main criticism in the article. I want to look at kind of try to 
look at what maybe an example you can think of like where because I, I mean when we break it through the non-aggression principle a lot of libertarians you might say well it's just about defining what aggression is so you know if people are conspiring to you know push you into a communist system or what have you then perhaps they would call that aggression and then that that doesn't you know, require or you know justify force and response so, but you know if you just look at it that the kind of the the micro level like say like the three guys forming a commune down the street well okay they're we can leave them alone pretty much as long as that's all all they're really doing but what's a situation where you might say okay we can't just leave these people alone because the sort of the extent to which they're organizing uh perhaps you know we can actually see, okay, if, if we let this go on, that then organizing over there will quickly, before before we have a chance to do anything about it, become them ruling over us over here. Is there kind of a, a way you can break that down in, in sort of our, our modern context? Well, definitely a salient example would be something on the scale of Chaz, as we saw last year, where you know Seattle uh, basically just becomes uh, a sort of communist microstate for a few weeks. And obviously that was all just kind of astroturfed and allowed by the regime anyway. Uh, but but it's that sort of thing that you would have to prevent. But, but, but even more so, um, you have to be willing to censure the sort of more insidious things that, that sort of lead to the decay of order in your society. You know, Hollywood is a big problem. Um, you know, basically, you, you can't... Uh, you can't allow... Uh, basically your your film industry to do nothing but basically distribute leftist propaganda right and that's like basically all netflix is now at this point which is yeah pretty much what we have now so 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 even stuff like that um it's not only about preventing sort of ideological communism take from taking root but it's also about preventing this sort of indirect type of subversion you see you know again hans herman hoppe talks about this you you can't allow like these these pride parades happening as we see now because this undermines the moral foundation of the society. It un- undermines the the traditional order of things that actually the, the 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 myth that keeps everything in place, right? So that that's actually another thing that a libertarian state would have to prevent is the is these pride parades because because they're this element of subversion, subverting like the the traditional way of of human beings socializing and human and sexual norms. And we, we always see a very direct connection between leftism and what we would call sexual degeneracy. There's a reason for this. I've been to a, a number of Libertarian Party uh, events and gatherings, and um, yeah, it's there. <laughs> Once the after hours parties start, even even before then. So. Yeah, th- this is kind of the problem with like the left libertarians that have taken over the party. You don't you don't you don't see this with the hardcore Austrian economics guys. They're all uh, well, not all, but you know they tend to be um, they tend to be very serious Christians often, or at least uh, very very uh, I would say tr- just traditional in their family life, and they they have a respect for um, the the, the civiliza- civilization really that they're a part of, and they're interested in maintaining it. And this the sort of these sort of leftist subvers- subversions like we see in Hollywood, uh, where you know we. Or, you know, the, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't. This would be a spoiler for the James Bond movie, but they, they're doing things. They're sort of um, Hollywood is sort of doing this like cultural terrorism, basically, to to all of the the movies, and and you see this happening with the Lord of the Rings now, where you know they're going to make the Lord of the Rings show coming out on Amazon like progressive and uh, very, you know, um, you know, you're probably going to see. Uh, well, well, we'll be careful. The ring is now a cock ring. Or something <laughs> yeah. Like that. Like- <laughs> stuff at that level right this this is actually an uh, an intentionally subversive element right and so so this is the kind of thing that at scale can't be allowed to propagate itself in a society you know it's again it's one thing if you have you know like one edgy independent filmmaker but when the entire film industry when the entire technological industry is 100% on the side of leftism that, that's simply a thing that just cannot be allowed it has to be said like look you're just you're not allowed to to do this. You're not allowed to uh, basically censor um, anyone who's going to contradict the regime's um, you know opinion on how the the biomedical security state should be set up. That simply cannot be allowed. Um, but because leftism has has basically you know subverted every single part of our society, and and most people are just sort of fully on board with it. Obviously, no one has the power to do that. Um, but but if if libertarians found themselves in a position of power one day this is the kind of thing you would have to do 
to prevent the decay from happening again. Because if you go to this purely anarchic state, well, basically the, the same process that happened already is just going to repeat itself again. And you'll see these sort of socialist states emerge um, and they're just going to take over everything. And libertarians will, will end up in this tiny uh, micro state that eventually gets taken over again anyway. Um, so if you're really interested in preserving liberty in the long term, you actually you need power behind it. Right. That's how that's how nations maintain themselves. You have to have power. The whole problem with liberalism and the way the U.S. is formulated in some senses, it's, it's always trying to hide power to sort of pocket it away to sort of disintegrate it and distribute it such that there's like less power but that's not actually possible to do there's always power and the expression of it in in any human society and you're either going to be under the rule of that power or you're going to be the power there's really only two choices you can't ever get rid of this this idea of human beings uh coming to rule over each other um it's simply against human nature um, th this is sort of a, a fundamental that's almost on the level of the fundamental observations Mises makes about human action. Um, it's really that integral to, to human nature. What would you say to, I guess, uh, modern day libertarians or, you know, maybe just other people like you who haven't, who want their own personal liberty in, in a sense, um, but have, uh, you know, just have been wrapped up in this concept of libertarianism or the non-aggression principle, and they, they want to see the change in their own lives, so maybe they take some kind of step, like, say, uh, moving from California to Texas or something. Like, like, and, and maybe that does help them in the short term. Like, maybe, that, maybe things are a little better in Texas or a little better in Florida, but would you say that even, even making those steps, maybe you're just kicking the can a little bit, but you're not actually going to you know, see those changes because, you know, maybe in your view, California is still coming for you. Yeah, so the, the idea that... Uh most people, including myself, sort of promote um, as a sort of interim step is this idea of parallelism, you know, building a, a parallel free market economy, basically. Um, you know, I'm planning on doing this with a few of my friends, basically, you know, um, sort of building a sort of micro covenant uh, where, you know, we just purchase property together um, and we sort of go off the grid and this sort of thing. And I think that this is something that, you know, most people really ought to be doing at this point. It kind of should be obvious at this point that you should be doing this um, and really starting uh, small businesses and building your own parallel economy um, along the side of what's happening now. This this is important because um, this will this will be what allows us to build the sort of power base, the economic base, to actually organize um, and oppose the regime in any in any serious sense. Um, I would say you know it would be better to do it in Texas than California. So moving to Texas is a good example. Florida might be even better. Um, perhaps some Pacific Northwest states might be even better. Um, there are not many places in America at this point that really are friendly to the idea of liberty, but there are a few. Uh, so I, I, you know, I think, and th this is very much in line with with kind of what libertarians want anyway, um, is to sort of build their own, you know, their own communities that that they run, and that, that's really what we're going to have to do um, over the next several decades in order to actually build up the. Uh, the demo demonstrative example of like how how this can actually work, right? Because you sort of have to put your money where your mouth is. Um, and if people are able to build small communities or even neighborhoods that are sort of self-sustaining and functioning and have their own sort of microeconomy between them, apart from this tyrannical regime we find ourselves in, that, that will show other people that there's sort of an alternative and a better way of, of living this is sort of how you you build the kind of uh, political base that you then organize into these sort of organized minorities that can funnel power through leaders and then enact political change that way. And you know, you basically trying to start. You're kind of trying to start your own nation from the ground up, basically. Um, so that that would that's that's sort of a practical thing to do in the individual interest that also serves the sort of radical greater political ends is, is to just sort of uh, go off the grid, basically, and try to separate yourself from all dependencies on um, the tyrannical we state we have now and try to integrate yourself into, you know, economic activity with other people, the same mindset so that, you know, the money flows between us and not back into the, the tyrannical regime. And if, if we can build all the necessary institutions to, to support ourselves, even if we're distributed over, you know, vast geographic areas through things like cryptocurrency, 
uh, you know, we can still do commerce with each other. Um, so, so, so this is a, a sort of practical aim. Now, if you want to aim big, and I think we do ultimately have to aim big, and this sort of plays into that, is, is we really need to figure out how to convince basically conservatives or Republicans to stop participating in this sort of deeply fake system of government we have. Um, stop voting for this fake right-wing party that we have and recognize that to the degree they're in- interested in liberty, this whole corrupt system needs to be replaced. And, you know, if we can, con- if we can keep spreading these, these ideas of uh, neo-reaction and this idea of just sort of replacing the U.S. government and, and detaching people from the Constitution, you know, conservatives are uh, obsessed with the Constitution in a way that libertarians are not. And this is a very useful thing libertarians bring to the table. You know, libertarians can point out um, very well uh, the the problems in the Constitution, like the Commerce Clause that sort of enables most of this nonsense. So we need to sort of get over this this attachment to the entire American government um, and reattach ourselves to the idea of the American myth of liberty. And if you if you can make that step as a conservative, then you can be willing to do you know something crazy like hold a referendum to uh, elect a monarch, basically. Um, which you know, people have this weird idea that this is like un-American, but electing a monarch or, or desiring a monarch is actually a pretty normal thing historically, even for democracies. I mean, you know, people know that to some extent uh, people wanted George Washington to be the king, um, but even even at other times, you know. Uh, the, 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 the Germans in the, uh, 19th century asked, um, Friedrich Wilhelm to be their king, basically, um, because they, they wanted one, right? They had a parliamentary, parliamentary democracy and they were like, Hey, we really need a, a king to run this show because, uh, this democratic system, um, is insufficient. And he actually declined it, um, uh, on the grounds of, of not wanting a crown from the gutter, basically, um, so it's, it's, it's not at all weird. Where did German democracy eventually lead? <laughs> and yeah, of course, this, this is sort of, the, this is sort of the, the bastardized idea of, of monarchical power that people have. You know, the dictator is totally different uh, from the monarch. The, mo- the dictator really is this sort of ultimate actualization of the totalitarianism of democracy. And that's... It, it, the dictator is it's like democracy with just one face on it yeah exactly and it, the dictator is just sort of acting out the the will of the people um in this very mundane sense but that's not what a monarch does that's not what a monarch is for a monarch is there to be um to bring order and to be responsible for that order and not necessarily to you know be at the the service of the popular will as we call it um popular will is actually this very deleterious concept that of course plays directly into the idea of socialism as you see with with basically every dictator that came about in in the 20th century um so anyway kind of went on a tangent yet there but uh yeah that, that's kind of my recommendations oh tangents are great i'm a fa- i'm a fan of tangents <laughs> all right well speaking of tangents folks i've got to take a brief little tangent to tell you a little bit more about our good friends at lorenzati italy Lorenzati Italy is the number one place for you to stop and order some fine premium Italian coffees delivered right to your door in these neat little tins. And if that wasn't enough, you get to do so knowing you're helping a sponsor of this program. And if that weren't enough, you get to order using your Lions of Liberty discount code. That discount code is ROAR and it gets you 10% off your order. So head on over to Lorenzati.coffee. And use discount code ROAR for 10% off some fine premium Italian coffees. Mm-mm-mm. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Speaking of tangents, actually, we, I, I got to wrap up in a couple of minutes, but I do actually want to take somewhat of a tangent because I, I was browsing your Substack and one article that I just want to touch on real quick because it, it really struck with me. First of all, it was just entertaining and, and made me chuckle. Uh, it's, it's the article called Booty Envy uh, <laughs> about, uh, about Nicki Minaj. So obviously, I mean, a title like that, how could I not click and just see what it was about? But when you really dug into it and, you know, talking about how conservatives might jump on the bandwagon of certain celebrities that for some brief moment or on some one issue might, might sort of be on their side and then they kind of all jump on the bandwagon. But I, I see libertarians do this all the time and it, dr- it kind of drives me nuts. 
nuts. You know, when you know, whether it's Elon Musk saying something good about cryptocurrency or like Jack Dorsey posting anatomy of the state, you'll see all these libertarians just jumping on uh, jumping at him. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of pathetic, really. They'll say, oh, welcome aboard. Oh, look, we've got one. Like, and it's like, just because they said this one thing or just because they did this one thing, it, it doesn't mean that they support the things you think they support or that they're really on your side. But you do kind of get into that in that article. So I'll, I'll let you kind of do your own your own breakdown of it. Yeah, so this is really common. I mean, basically, you know, Nicki Minaj came out uh, kind of against the uh, the needlecraft a few weeks ago and people got really excited, um, like she's a new ally or something. But I mean, this this person is... A leftist through and through this person is, is deeply embedded into the subversive elements of, of Hollywood and the entertainment industry. You know, this person is not on your side in any sense. This person is not a conservative. Um, you know, she is a leftist and there's, there's no reason to really sort of be promoting this person as this sort of ally. You know, if, if Nicki Minaj is going to cause problems for the regime, you know, that's, that's great. That's fine. But the enemy of your enemy is not your friend. Um, don't ever interrupt the enemy when they're making a mistake, but you, there's no reason to get involved in this process or act like it's a win for us because, um, you know, people on the right, we didn't, we didn't do anything to cause this, right? This is just a leftist attacking other leftists. And, you know, we can laugh at that, but uh, it's not a conservative victory of any kind. No. And, and you see the same thing. Uh, what I get into in that article is about, I talk about AOC and her tax, the rich dress, you know, basically every time AOC does anything, you just see right-wing media just bringing a ton of attention to it. Like we just feed into this, this cycle when you should just be absolutely ignoring these people. Um, like the fact that all of these crazy lefties get so much attention from the right to the point where the Daily Wire even made some really nice communist propaganda for her. It's just, it's just a ridiculous relationship. Um, there's no reason for us to have any relationship whatsoever um, with leftists. Like, um, you know, I basically have a policy where I won't even talk to leftists. Like I won't go on a leftist podcast. I have no, I have no interest in communicating, communicating with them. This is the basic Schmidtian friend enemy distinction. I mean, just, right, well, if that's the case, I'll tell you which libertarian podcast to avoid. <laughs> so you don't end up talking to leftists. We can talk about that off the air. <laughs> so it's, so it's like, you know, conservatives uh, and people on the right generally, they, they really need to embrace the, the Schmidtian friend enemy distinction and, and understand that when you sort of see this thrashing happen sometimes from from other leftists that this isn't something to to lean into we really want to lean into our own stuff our own accomplishments you know as i was describing like we could do earlier um we want to work entirely within our own um parallel circle and and just sort of be agnostic to these events that happen and if if events happen that you know serve our interests you know great but you know if if, if it's being led by a leftist basically it, it we shouldn't really get involved um because we have to disconnect from this system at a very fundamental level to actually have any chance of really overturning it. Yeah. It might be fun to watch the, the left eat each other alive and we can, you know, smile slyly to ourselves when we see it happen and enjoy the show, but we shouldn't, you know, fool ourselves into thinking it's some kind of victory for libertarianism or conservatism. No, and of course, what happens after they eat each other alive? Even worse, leftists come out of it, right? That's, that's yeah. what happens. Yeah. Mm. All right, well, uh, Charlene, I really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts with us. It's been uh, it's been fun. So I'll, I'll give you the chance to plug away on everything you got going on. Cool, yeah. So the Substack, if you want to read it, charlemagne.substack.com. I also have a YouTube channel. Um, if you search uh, about the cathedral and mold bug, you'll, you'll definitely find my channel if it doesn't show up under Charlemagne directly. Um, I also fairly regularly appear on another YouTube channel called The Academic Agent, who hosts the Cigar Streams, which I... Uh, co-host occasionally and uh, those on those we study particular texts um, to some significant depth with other guests so that's a very good place to go if you want to sort of check out my general circle um, if, and if you want to see sort of the source of the neo-reactionary ideology uh, look up the unqualified reservations blog by Mencius Moltbug slash Curtis Yarvin yeah I think that's it all right Charlemagne thanks a lot man I really appreciate it keep up the great work man keep on roaring thank you all right, kitties, that wraps my interview with Charlemagne. Uh, my first look, at least 
on this podcast at the Neo Reactionary Movement. Of course, as Charlemagne mentioned, uh, mentions Moanblug, aka Curtis Yarvin, is basically the founder of that. And uh, I know that shows like this are the kind that are going to ruffle some feathers, um, but that's what I'm here to do. I'm here to ruffle your feathers. I'm here to bring new ideas into the fold uh, instead of just recycling the same old ideas over and over. Now, maybe the old ideas went out. Maybe the new ideas went out. Maybe the truth is somewhere in the middle, but that's why I'm here. That's what I've always wanted to do with this show from the beginning is push the boundaries of what, well, in the beginning, it was more push the boundaries of what other people were thinking about because I really wanted to teach people about the ideas of liberty. Now I'm more speaking to the greater liberty community and trying to bring new ideas into that and see where things go. Because if there's one thing I know about the last 18 to 20 months is that whatever we had been doing in the past was not working because look where we are. I mean, that's just simply undeniable. And speaking of ruffling feathers, it's quite possible that I may have ruffled some feathers on last week's last Friday's episode of Free Man Beyond the Wall. I was interviewed by my buddy Pete Quinones. And uh, it's not that often on this show that I just go off on rants since I'm usually here interviewing. Well, Pete, uh, Pete gave me a platform to go on some rants. And I, I got a lot of stuff off my chest that I had been thinking about. Uh, a lot of what's been going on in my mind regarding the liberty movement. Uh, regarding a lot of the commentary, regarding a lot of the strategies that I see out there. And uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. That's just a high level teaser for you to go listen to uh, last Friday's episode of Free Man Beyond the Wall. Uh, And don't forget, you got more Lions of Liberty coming at you this week. You got Brian McWilliams with his acerbic brand of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land every single Wednesday while Odie wraps things up on Thursdays with his journey into the world, helping others, helping himself in many ways as well. Find more freedom on Finding Freedom. You get all three of these shows for the price of one. The price is free, my friends. Isn't that wonderful? But if you want the price to be more than free, we can accommodate that as well. You can head over to Patreon, patreon.com slash lionsofliberty. You can also go to Locals now at lionsofliberty.locals.com. Either of those platforms, uh, you can support us and receive all of our bonus content, live streams of many interviews. I did this one as a live stream. Uh, I just did a live stream with Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute, which will be released to the public a week from today. You want to hear that now? Hey, what's five bucks, my friends, especially now in the age of inflation, that five bucks that we've been charging for years, probably more like, I don't know, dollar fifty now. So it's, it's even a better deal thanks to the Federal Reserve. So you have them to thank uh, for, the, for a, much, a much more affordable, really, relatively speaking, Patreon experience. But uh, we really do give back to our patrons. We try to, uh, we have all sorts of various levels, various tiers. Uh, we'll also be hearing, uh, actually, we just dropped a bonus show uh, with our friends from Good Morning Liberty because they are actually Nittany level patrons of ours for 50 bucks a month. They get in the queue to produce an episode of this program and they want to do an episode a little crossover episode with yours truly so uh, we had a blast doing that one again patreon.com slash lions of liberty or lions of that's all i got this week until next week my friends please don't forget to live and live free